Hey friends, Catlaw Hagquist here with a reminder that locally owned and artist operated bizbooks.net is still your best source for plays, acting books, scene books, teacher resources, and much, much more. And as you, like we, are clearly fans of Sabrina and YVR Screen Scene, we want to offer you 15% off your next purchase with the coupon code SCREENSCENE23. So come check us out at bizbooks.net. Sign up for our newsletter and follow us on social to learn what's new. And if you're in the Vancouver area, watch out for one of our pop-up shops throughout the year to come say hello and shop in person. Remember, Screen Scene 23 promo code is only available at bizbooks.net for a limited time. This episode was sponsored in part by listeners like you. Join our Patreon community and receive early access to episodes, bonus content, stickers, buttons, and more. Visit www.patreon.com slash podcast. Welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast, where we pull back the curtain and expose the beating heart of the Vancouver film and television industry, namely the actors and filmmakers and other talented artists who do the work, capital T, capital W. I'm Sabrina Ronnie Furminger. What is Chinatown? It's a simple question, and yet how you answer it depends on your personal history, your grasp of history, and your views about how cities can and should evolve and change. For me, it's where I've always headed for weekend dim sum, bulk tea, and white rabbit candy. For others, it's their first stop in their immigration journey, a gateway from China to Chinese-Canadian life or where they find community, culture, and communion. And for others still, it's a place to scoop up real estate and put up condos, or a high-rise jail, or famously in Vancouver, a wildly unpopular overpass. So how you answer that simple question, what is Chinatown, reflects a worldview. And in this historic moment, how that question is answered by Chinatown stakeholders and those whose answers take dominion over all others will determine the future of Chinatown itself. That question and the myriad of emotions and viewpoints it invites sit at the heart of Big Fight in Little Chinatown, the stirring documentary film from Montreal-based filmmaker Karen Cho. The film explores the fights currently being fought in four Chinatowns in Montreal, Toronto, New York, and right here in Vancouver. We meet the stewards of these Chinatowns, consider the role that Chinatown has played and continues to play in building and sustaining community, and we see the destructive power of urban development and its relationship to anti-Asian racism. As one of Karen's interview subjects says in the film, are these neighborhoods that should be put under glass or are these neighborhoods that should be able to grow and thrive and change? Big Fight in Little Chinatown opens the Doxa Documentary Film Festival on May 4th, where it will screen a mere stone's throw away from Vancouver's Chinatown, and it will also enjoy a series of community screenings across the country. Today, I am delighted to welcome Karen Cho, 
filmmaker of Big Fight in Little Chinatown, and a long-lost school friend of this very podcast host, Karen Cho. Welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Sabrina. This is great. It is a first in the history of our podcast. We've had various kinds of reunions, but this is the first time I'm having a reunion with somebody that I didn't keep in touch with since grade four, 1989. Because <laughs> as the youngins might not realize, we didn't have Facebook. We didn't have the TikTok. We, we had nothing. We had nothing. We had Canada Post. But anyway, it is bizarre and wild and so awesome to, to see you again in the little Zoom box right now. <laughs> yeah, it makes the world feel very small. <laughs> so small. Okay, so tell me about your own individual experience of Chinatown. What role did it play in your in your family and in your earliest beginnings? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm I'm a fifth generation Chinese Canadian. I, I'm mixed race, but on my Chinese side, it goes back five generations. And my family roots actually go back to the very beginnings of both Montreal and Vancouver's Chinatowns. Uh, my great grandparents were business people in both of those Chinatowns. And um, my grandmother and grandfather were born in those Chinatowns. Um, so I have very deep family connections um, with Chinatown. I, I, In particular, in Montreal, I remember, um, you know, my grandmother or going to Chinatown every weekend with our family. But then in particular, spending time there with my grandmother who grew up in the neighborhood. And, you know, everyone would be speaking twice in these uh, with her, but she knew everyone in the neighborhood. And I was really given this kind of privileged point of view into the Chinatown that was kind of beyond the the storefronts or the, the you know, the, facade, the kind of tourist facade of the Chinatown. You know, I got into these kind of back rooms and and rooming houses where where different relatives would be staying or talking with, you know, the shopkeepers or the restaurant owners. Um, so that was something always very special to me as a kind of childhood memory. And then also uh, professionally, I'd, the very first documentary I filmed that I made, which was about 20 years ago now, it was a film called In the Shadow of Gold Mountain. And that mm -hmm. film was about the Chinese Head Tax and Exclusion Act. And I also shot that film in both, uh, you know, Montreal and Vancouver's Chinatown. Um, but the film also screened in Chinatowns across the country mm -hmm. um, way back when. So, I, you know, I had connections with all of these communities and I'd seen all these Chinatowns and been to all these Chinatowns. Um, but in the present, you know, like fast forwarding 20 years, I could also see how in the present day, you know, so many of these Chinatowns were in kind of periods of decline, active erasure or had been kind of disappeared altogether. Um, yeah. So that's kind of what gave me, I guess, the motivation to make this current documentary, a uh, big fight in little Chinatown. Yeah. I go back to the question of my um, in my thesis statement. And actually, I, I asked that question and then it kind of leads to part two of the question. You know, what is Chinatown and why does Chinatown matter? Yeah, I mean, Chinatown, it's interesting because it has, a, you know, Henry Yu, who's in the film, talked talk to me about this, but how it has a layered meaning. Um, you know, it means different things to different people. Like I, I am, you know, part of the Lowaku generation, which means like the old overseas Chinese. So of course, um, my ancestors and and my people, you know, were part of the ones who founded the Chinatowns. You know, um, were members of the family associations and the businesses 
that are kind of at the very beginnings of Chinatown. But even today, you know, um, students that are coming in, even folks who are maybe Asian but adopted into white families, um, find meaning in a place like Chinatown. You know, it's a place to connect with your cultural roots, a place to find a sense of family uh, for newer immigrants. It's a place to, you know, have a foothold in Canada, um, you know, kind of find a, a familiar kind of surroundings, but also, you know, forge your way in a new place. So, you know, Chinatown means different things to to different people. Um, and to me, I guess, having filmed the film, you know, during COVID, mm. when there was this kind of crazy uptick in anti-Asian racism and where Chinatowns like across the country were targeted, uh, you know, with vandal, uh, well, violence or vandalism, um, you know, like the Chinatown took on a new meaning for me in the sense that you know, like in a time where everyone in my community or folks that looked like my father, you know, were being told to go back to their country. The fact that we have all these neighborhoods that are centuries old in Canada, you know, is a testament to the fact that we have been here for a long time and, and um, you know, aren't perpetual foreigners in, in this place. Yeah. What kind of threats do you see facing the four different Chinatowns that you that you feature in the film, because on, on one hand, you know, they're all, yes, they're all Chinatowns, but they're also that, I mean, the cities are different, you know, Vancouver is such a di different city than New York, you know, like, but what kind of threads do you see uh, informing the, you know, this period of endangerment, you know, that, that they're facing? Yeah. I mean, one thing, like it was important for me to, to focus on more than one Chinatown because I could see this kind of pattern of, of things happening in all the Chinatowns, even though, as you say, you know, they're in different cities and they're different, you know, there is this kind of intersection between racism and urban planning that happens in all of the Chinatowns and not necessarily only Chinatowns. Like this is something that happens in so many marginalized communities, communities of color. Um, and often in a city, the Chinatown is kind of like the last remaining ethnic enclave or, or, or neighborhood, you know, like in, in Vancouver, you, you mentioned this infamous kind of overpass, right? Like, like Hogan's alley was completely alley. wiped yes. out, you know, for, for the, the Georgia viaduct, right? Yeah. And, to and listeners, cause we have listeners all over the world. Hogan's alley was where the, the black community in Vancouver, where they gathered and they had a lot of business there and community and it was completely wiped out by this, stupid viaduct that nobody uses nobody even uses it everybody hates it and it really seems like nope we just did that to actively just wipe out and and completely displace the the black community here as well as a big chunk of chinatown as well that's right and like that same kind of pattern happens in city after city like if you you know, you just have to look at the freeway map in the United States if you want to see where all the, you know, the historic black communities were like, like they're literally where the freeway was placed, you know, or, or Latinx communities. Um, you know, there there are choices that cities make in terms of where they put certain pieces of infrastructure. And often it has to um, do with, you know, the power and the privilege of the people living in those neighborhoods. Mm. And in Montreal, you know, uh, like uh, two thirds of our Chinatown was expropriated specifically because the city knew it would be the or considered it to be a neighborhood of least resistance in terms of, 
um, you know, these these kind of tough decisions that that the city would make. So they were specifically placed on poor neighborhoods, marginalized neighborhoods and neighborhoods of color. Mm. So that, you know, that's something I see across the board in all the Chinatowns. Mm. Um, but, you know, like the film explores, like they're tr- they're putting up, you know, a, a, the largest vertical jail in the world. They're trying to put this thing up, this mega jail in New York's Chinatown in the present day. So it's it's like a present day example of this kind of level of, um, you know, racism intersecting with urban planning, right? They're, they're sticking this giant jail beside a senior citizen's house or, or a home and like like a, a vibrant park that is used by the whole community. Um, you know, and then in Montreal, it, it's kind of more uh, a heritage fight. Um, during COVID, these, this, these kind of you know, no, notorious developers um, descended onto our Chinatown, um, bought up the Wings Noodle buildings, which is a very historic business here, and then started buying up buildings on the most historic block of our Chinatown. So there was land assembly happening in Montreal. In Toronto, we see, um, you know, gentrification pressures from big box stores that are moving into the area, kind of displacing the mom and pop shops and the the kind of um you know individual entrepreneurs that that um are in that neighborhood or for the moment remain in that neighborhood so we're kind of looking at all different forms of of pressures on the neighborhood and of course in vancouver um you know the chinatown is is part of the downtown east side It, it it has historically been and continues to be a neighborhood for marginalized people um, and we focus on um, William Yu, who's a second generation owner of an amazing business called Kamwai Dim Sum. They make frozen amazing um, <laughs> dim sum. Yeah, it, it's so delicious. So but good. Also so affordable. Right. Like and it's amazing how this family, you know, has based their business model around the residents around them in the community. And mm. instead of being a kind of tourist facing business model where you're going to charge like $50 a plate for like this, you know, kind of uh, hipster Asian fusion food. Uh, instead, they're doing culturally relevant, like delicious Chinese food and making it affordable in a neighborhood where lots of people are low income and, and marginalized. Mm-hmm. And not only the, the Chinese community uses Kamwai Dim Sum really as an anchor for their lives, like to be able to afford food in your own neighborhood is huge in, 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 you know, in, in today's dates with all these kind of rising prices and, you know, inability to actually um, stay in a community without being displaced. So this business on one level, they sell frozen dim sum, but on another level, they're literally an anchor for all of those around them and the stability in the people's lives. Yeah. Such a rarity too, in this, in, in this day and age and in the larger culture, Karen, I was watching the film and knowing you, the, the idea of you, at least, you know, from when you were a kid, as I do, like I was really aware of the fact that everybody that that we see on screen, you were having an interaction with. And there are so many, I mean, lovely, lovely old people, you know, and so much food around. Can you tell me about some of the 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 memorable moments and interactions that you had as, you know, you sat down with all of these these Chinatown residents, you know, and they and they shared their lives with you. I mean, so much of of the kind of, I guess, craft of documentary filmmaking is really building this, you know, sense of trust uh, with your subjects. And and, you know, like I have the privilege of, of, 
you know, being in a kind of film form that that looks at real people in, in, in real life situations, you know, and these are real everyday real life heroes, you know, on, on some level. So so, you know, it's just being able to kind of listen to their points of view and, and trying to um, be true to their kind of viewpoint on the world in the film. So a lot of the film, because, uh, you know, like the film took place during COVID. Mm. Um, it was like challenging to, to film, to say the least. Um, but some of the challenges and the thing, you know, like we often, sometimes it was myself filming with a camera just on my own. Uh, sometimes I would be with a one DP. I ended up having two cinematographers on this film because I couldn't cross the border for the first nine months of making the film. Um, so I had a New York based cinematographer, you know, that um, vaccines weren't invented first, like going back to like the very beginning of uh, making this film, I, I attended, um, it was a gathering of coast to coast Chinatowns against displacement. It was a gathering that took place in New York's Chinatown in March of 2020. So of course, you know, three days after returning from this um, kind of gathering, um, they shut down New York for COVID. And, you know, we all know kind of what happened in the story after that. Um, but because I was on the ground in New York, I actually met May Lum and her father, Gary, who are the ones that uh, run Wing on Woe, the, this porcelain store and the oldest uh, storefront in um, New York's Chinatown. So I actually met them in person. And because I was able to form that kind of relationship with them face to face, I could continue the conversation over Zoom. And it was actually May Lum who helped me to find um, the New York-based cinematographer, whose name is Nate Brown. Um, Nate is May's like one of her best friends in real life. And he actually also happened to work at Wing on Woe. So at the beginning when she said, yeah, it was kind of like finding, you know, like a unicorn or like a, a needle in a haystack, you Amazing. know, because I told May I was going to have this issue where I couldn't cross the border and I was going to try to find a New York-based camera person to come and film with her. And she said, oh, well, my friend Nate is a camera person. And, you know, at, at the beginning, you're like, OK, like it's probably some guy, you know, like does weddings or, or you know, just has a camera. But no, he was like a, a professional cinematographer. But even more importantly, someone who was in the bubble of the family, you know, like during COVID, her her grandmother, her great aunt, they're both in their 90s, you know, like health and safety was a real concern. So he was in their bubble. And they knew him very well. So so they trusted him, you know, mm. and, and the film, I think so many of the moments in the film are the ones that Nate captured, um, you know, that feeling of intimacy and the feeling of like being in the back kitchen of, of the store, like like no one gets to go there except the close friends, you know, and the, and the film got to go there. Yeah. Um, so it was really like for me, it was kind of getting back to this way I had experienced Chinatown as a child, like with my grandmother taking me into those special places, really where oh. the soul of the community kind of lives. Um, and so I like literally like we with the camera, we travel through doorways, down stairwells, uh, up to the second floor, into the back rooms to bring our audiences there. And the reason why we were able to do that is because of this kind of trust that we built with our subjects. And also because our film crew itself was so intimate you know like mm. I at the most I only had five people on as a film crew and very often we were a one or two person um film crew uh, being in these spaces so we kind of did just you know 
melt into the to the like a fly in the wall you know people kind of forgot that we were there and and then a lot of the what unfolds or the conversations that happen just feel more uh, natural as a result yeah do you have a most memorable day or favorite day when you think when you look back at the at you know the the couple of years that it, that you produced this film made this film you know when it, like what is there a, a day that comes to vivid memory yeah, no, it's so hard because like we filmed in like four different cities and every time you enter into a Chinatown space, like there's this thing that happens in Chinatown where you kind of almost become like a member of the family. It's like you're one of us, you're a Chinatown person. And even though I was not necessarily in my Chinatown, I was just welcomed so amazingly into these places. So, you know, of course, filming in Wing on Wo, uh, being there the day that they reopened the shop was was very, very special. Like you finally see we had filmed that place, you know, kind of empty for almost like a year, a year and a half. And then to see it kind of open the doors that there was a block party happening outside and on this one corner was kind of all the elements of Chinatown. You know, there were the neighbors, Jan Lee and, and Mei Lam, who lived across the street from each other. There were the cooks from Hop Key having a cigarette break outside. And then there was this block party with all these amazing young, you know, Asian artists from the LGBT community uh, mm. with these old grandmas, you know, collecting cans at, at, at the side of the road. It's kind of like this mishmash of everything that makes Chinatown what it what it is like this amazing kind of gathering place for all different types of people to find a, a sense of belonging. So that was like a really memorable uh, moment. Also, just meeting William Liu in uh, Vancouver, the, the very first time I met him, went to his shop. And some of that interview is like literally cut into the film. It was meant to just be a research interview. But I just, you know, asked him some very kind of basic questions about uh, his business and and his view on Chinatown while he's standing out front of his shop and and his he wears his heart on his sleeve mm. and is so committed to that neighborhood. You, you know, um, their family could easily move out to Richmond or or some other kind of suburb, have a giant dim sum factory, and make hand over fist, you know, millions of dollars. But they choose specifically and and very purposefully to remain in Chinatown to keep the the prices of their food affordable and to stay connected with the community that they grew up with you know and there's something to be said for for that kind of um you know vision that that an entrepreneur or a business would have so you know like these were really eye-opening experiences that you know just spending time with the people you you kind of um you know that's where you find the real life heroes right yeah and I, I certainly did your film definitely gives us a chance to feel like we are also spending time there. It's made me be like, okay, we it's been a few weeks since we've been down to Chinatown, gotta head back to Florida to have some dim sum, whatever, stroll the stroll the streets there. What kind of call to action uh, would you like to attach to your film or or what kind of conversations would you like to inspire in audiences, both people within the Chinese Canadian community and also people who who just love Chinatown, but aren't necessarily Chinese Canadian themselves. Well, I think like one of the kind of calls to action for the film, like in general for audiences is to really look at your city with, with a critical eye and, and mm -hmm. to kind of ask hard questions about like, what choices are we making, you know, as a city, who are we building these neighborhoods for? Where are the priorities, right? Like my Chinatown uh, here in Montreal, um, 
on one level, we have no community gathering places, but on another level, there's so many empty lots and empty buildings and empty storefronts um, left in the Chinatown because people are literally like, there's so much real estate speculation happening. Mm. And through making this film and talking with folks like, like Henry Yu of, of UBC mentioned this to me and it, it just stuck with me is like, you know, because well in in Vancouver they you know they fought over this empty lot 105 Kiefer it, it was an empty lot that a developer wanted to you know rezone and it was right across the street from the cultural center and on one level it's like who cares it's an empty parking lot like usually people are fighting over some heritage building or whatever but that empty parking lot like when you look at these empty spaces it's like how are these empty places robbing the community of its future potential mm. right like like in in these places where space is so at a premium so to me i think like a call to action would just be to recognize like to look around your chinatown and your city for that matter with a critical eye who is allowed to stay who is getting displaced and what is being done with the public space or the empty space or not being done with it so i mean that's one thing but I think, you know, another message of the film is how we can't take places like Chinatown for granted. You know, mm. so many people, uh, Chinese or Asian or, or not, you just assume like Chinatown is kind of just a fixture of every city. It's like, let's go to Chinatown. You know, tourists go to Chinatown. Everyone knows what a Chinatown kind of looks and feels like. But these spaces need to be protected and, and honored and valued for them to be able to continue. Because at the edges of that thing called Chinatown are, are all these pressures, are, you know, these invading forces, be they luxury condos or mm. like, you know, a prison or a, a freeway that's getting dropped onto the neighborhood. So it's not to take these places for granted and to also recognize that Chinatown on various levels is a stand in for these other communities that have been wiped off the city map. Mm. Um, but also, you know, not to be so negative, I hope the film um, gives people hope, you know, like Chinatown, when you look at it, the, it, it is the quintessential Jane Jacobs neighborhood. You know, it's the neighborhood all urban planners would dream of. It's a human scale uh, neighborhood where, where people know their neighbors, look out for, uh, for each other. And there's a vibrant street life, right? Mm. No one goes to a city and, and is like, oh, I want to go to the, the strip mall with all the chain stores or, or the kind of like faceless luxury condo building. Like everyone wants to go to those neighborhoods that have that human scale and the personality and the specialty shops, uh, you know, run by like multi-generational folks. And, and Chinatown is that place mm. um, that has such a, such a layered meaning in, in a city. So why not look at like what makes Chinatown work, what makes it tick, what are the the best of the old things and how can we foster that and and support that and make sure those kind of things continue into the future. Because, you know, what we do with Chinatown can be a blueprint for building these kind of like resilient, vibrant and inclusive neighborhoods of the future. Yeah. Tell me about this uh, multi-city tour, the community tour that the film is about to embark on. Yeah, so so I mean, starting like with the Doxa uh, screening, the opening of the Doxa Film Fest, um, the film is embarking on what we're calling a coast to coast in community tour. So so the film will travel to various cities all across Canada, 
um, in some cities in the U.S. as well, um, and really come back to community. Like like this film, it, it was filmed in Chinatown. It was the community who you know gave me my voice as a filmmaker, going back to my very first film, but also gave so much of themselves for for the making of this film. So it's great to be able to return the film back to the community and and all communities in different Chinatowns because we're trying to you know hold screenings of the films in various Chinatowns be they in big you know cineplexes or little um you know shops or community centers uh where we have a, a translated version of the film that will have traditional Chinese subtitles at the bottom so that so everyone in the community can can you know understand what's happening in the film and so also the community can use uh, the film as a tool, you know, for change, for advocating for the own their own issues in their own Chinatown. So, so we're going kind of coast to coast in in various cities all across, um, well, North America, and uh, you know, on top of Doxa on on May fourth and May 9th, the film will also come back to Vancouver's Chinatown on June third. It's going to play in the Cineplex Odeon there with all the different uh, Chinatown. Uh, we don't call it. I mean, I know it's called Cineplex Odeon International Village Cinemas. It's Tinseltown. It's Tinseltown. We all. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> it's playing at Tinseltown, which is right there in the Chinatown, which is fantastic. Yeah, um, so we want to make the film accessible to as many people as possible. We've also got like a whole fundraising kind of campaign. Uh, you know, linked to these screenings, what we're selling, what we're calling Chinatown swag, but it's essentially a series of merchandise items based off of this beautiful illustration that uh, Singa Han, it's an artist, she's an illustrator artist out of New York City. Um, she made the poster of the film. I, I'll show it to you, even though people can't see it on this. Oh, podcast. beautiful. Um, but so, so we've adapted this um, to, to a, a poster for the tour. It names all the cities and whatnot. Um, we're going to be selling large versions of the poster, small versions, stickers, buttons, all these kind of things. And all the proceeds for from the sales of these items will go back into future Chinatown initiatives in every city that we travel to. So, yeah. you know, we're trying to also like give back uh, in a certain way. We're also doing a poster campaign where we give out free eight by 11 versions of the poster um, for Chinatown shopkeepers to put in their windows. And if you go down to Chinatown, you see a poster in the window of a store. If you spend $20 there, you'll get a free poster. So it's a way of trying to drive the business also back into the different Chinatowns. So, wow. you know, we're trying to think of, you know, film beyond just sitting and watching the film, like how film can start, uh, you know, like a community dialogue or have some kind of impact and return to, to the communities of which the film is born. Do you consider yourself an activist or a Chinatown activist as well? <laughs> well, I mean, now I am. And it's so weird because usually, you know, you're a documentary filmmaker, you're, you know, there's like a journalism aspect to the thing. You're supposed to be a bit of a, yeah. you know, like exactly have a distance. bit of yeah. recul, distance. Yeah. Uh, they say in Quebec um, from your subjects and be a bit of an observer and whatnot. But of all the films, uh, you know, I've made like this was really me returning back to like the, the community that gave me my voice for my very first film. So mm -hmm. I had a kind of role and a responsibility also, like with the, the, privilege that I have had to be a, a filmmaker, to be able to make films, you know, that, that are playing on, uh, this one is going to be playing on TV Ontario and French CBC. So, you know, I have a responsibility back to that community. And of course, 
while I was filming the film, like the Wings Noodle Factory um, was bought in my own Chinatown. And we were literally like one condo project away from losing our Chinatown. Um, my own great grandfather was an associate in the company that became Wings Noodle. So it, oh. they're also my cousins. Um, and I just couldn't sit there as a filmmaker and like reconcile that I would just be filming the demise and the erasure of my own Chinatown. Mm. Right. So so I did cross this line that you usually aren't really supposed to cross from kind of being filmmaker to being an activist. Like I was and continue to volunteer with the Chinatown organizers in Montreal. It was the Chinatown working group at the time. And now we've also co-founded um, a nonprofit um, for Chinatown called the Jia Foundation. And Jia means like home or this feeling of belonging in, in Mandarin. So um long story short yeah i mean i think in terms of chinatown i guess i am an activist but i mean my tool of activism is storytelling and, yeah. and it's powerful you know you know when you come from a community whose history has essentially been erased from the kind of mainstream narrative of the country um mm. to be able to tell your story uh, and tell the story of a community that is actively being erased in so many cities so you know just the the fact of like digging into the archives, showing images of the Chinatowns being expropriated and destroyed, and also showing the viewpoint of the community who is very much, you know, has agency and has resiliency and has a deep history of, of resisting all of these kind of pressures over generations. Um, you know, it's important to tell that story, to give people hope and to, um, let people know that Chinatown will continue into the future if we take it upon ourselves to be those stewards that that Andy Yan talks about, you know, those stewards to bring the, the neighborhood into the future. Fantastic. It has been an honor hosting you today, Karen, not just seeing you for the first time since 1989 and speak with you for, for the first time since 1989, but also to, to get to spend this time with you talking about your film. Where can our listeners find you, follow you, follow the film's journey, you know, either on the Internet or on social media? Well, um, I think probably the easiest way is is we have a website for the film. So it's called Big Fight in Little Chinatown.com. All our links to our social media are there. If you, you know, on Facebook, it's Big Fight in Little Chinatown. Same thing with the Instagram. And we have all the tours, uh, the tour dates uh, listed out. So hopefully your city is on there or, or your friend's city is on there. So you can follow uh, the film as it kind of makes its way through uh, cities and in communities all across the country. Yeah. And you also said there are screenings also on TV Ontario and on French CBC. So yes, that's right. And we're even having a virtual screening with the Can Asian Arts Network. So there's lots of opportunities and ways to, to see the film. The majority of the community screenings are free. So we're trying to really, you know, raise the funds to make the film happen and uh, make it easy for the community to get to the screenings. Inspiring. Fantastic. Thank you, Karen. And listeners, I know I've said it a few times, but Big Fight in Little Chinatown screens. It's the opening night film at the 2023 Doxa Documentary Film Festival, and then it screens again on May 9th. You can visit doxafestival.ca for tickets, screening times, and also info about how to access their online screenings. All right, please like, subscribe, leave us a review if you're so inclined. 
They help us find even more listeners and we can keep having rad conversations like the one that we had today. You can find us at YVRScreenScene.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at YVRScreenScene and on Twitter and Mastodon. Yes, Mastodon, that's a thing, at Sabrinarmph. The YVR Screen Scene Podcast is hosted and executive produced by me, Sabrina Rani Mera Firminger, and it's edited by Simon Firminger. Special thanks to Mariana Firminger for recording our Patreon ad and to Paul Firminger for technical support. Yes, Karen, we are a family business over here. YVR Screen Scene is a division of Fish Flight Entertainment. Join us next time for another deep dive into Vancouver's dynamic film and television scene. And cut! Hi friends, Kat Lawhequist here, and I'm excited to introduce you to thedramaclass.com. Thedramaclass.com provides online workshops and classes designed to provide inspiration and instruction in the sometimes overlooked areas you need to be successful in your acting career. Things that they don't often cover in studio classes. Things like tax prep for actors, the power of costume in getting a job, what to do if you primarily work on camera and find yourself with a voiceover audition, what you can do to adjust your performance to the camera lenses being used, and so much more. Maximize your opportunities by filling in the gaps that will make your craft your career. Visit us at thedramaclass.com, sign up for our newsletter, follow us on social, and explore what will take you to the next level.